0: I'm grateful for their work. If I haven't met you yet, uh, my name is Brian. I'm the teaching pastor here at Exchange. Uh, and I feel like we could just almost quit now, you know, just go home and it's been enough already. Uh, but we will just look at the word together. Yeah, I, I will. I'll be honest. Every part of the youth pastor in my life is resisting the urge to uh, let me hear North Wake. Let me hear Exchange. And there's two reasons for that. One, I learned a long time ago never to start a game that you know you can't win. Right. So. I know that dad can still beat me in arm wrestling. I just, that's that. And then there's some DNA transfer that I just know that that wouldn't go so well. You know, it's like the traits that you get from your parents that it just makes you know, you could be walking down the street and it's a father and a son or a mother and a daughter and there's mannerisms or the walk or the smile or something. And you're like, that's their kid, you know? And I think one of those DNA traits, that are just inherently North Wake. Uh, is what we refer to as the Northwake chill, you know? It's like, it's hard to describe, but it's that feeling, you know, where at Northwake, it's the 9 o'clock service. At Exchange, it's the 10 o'clock service. And you're on time. You're going to make your landing zone of 9.15 and uh, 10.15, right? (laughs) But something happens, and you're running just a little bit late, but not the kind of late that, like, keeps you from stopping in the lobby to grab a cup of coffee and have four conversations kind of late, you know? We refer to this DNA trait as the receding hairline. You know, it's like the thing that we don't really love that you gave us, Northwake. But we just accept that it's part of who we are, you know. There is a spot, though, that if we could be more like you, it would be in missions. It would be your heart for missions. What you've done and what you do and what you sacrifice and what you give if we could grow up to be like mom and dad in one thing, it would be how you specifically and intentionally and constantly sin and give and grow and go. And so today we're going we're to look at a passage really quickly. So we'll get to Mark chapter five in a second. As you scroll there, or turn there, I, I want to ask just this simple question. Did anybody drive to North Wake or the elementary school this morning? Anybody? It's okay if you did, if you want to admit it, if you don't want to admit it. Uh, maybe you were about to and your spouse were like, What are you doing? Oh, I, I know, I know. Blink it out of the other way, right? We get in these patterns in life and we just expect things to be the same way, whether it's a Sunday or a work day or maybe with our kids or our career. And if we're not careful, a lot of times we can use uh, the patterns that we see in the world and the the patterns that we sometimes see in Scripture in the way that we project God's mission onto our lives. And it happens all the way back from Genesis uh, when we see God doing certain things with certain people. And it seems as if There's specific people that are called into the mission of God. And then the rest of us are called to be kind of co-laborers or called to be a part of their mission. And it starts in Genesis chapter 6, verse 11. We see it with, uh, with Noah. When the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence, God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all the flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Verse 13, and God said to Noah, one man, the end of all flesh has come before me, and the earth was filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy the earth and make it for yourself. Make for yourself, he says, an ark of gopher wood that you shall make an ark with rooms, and it shall cover inside and in and out with pitch. God comes to Noah, one man on the face of the earth, and he says, Hey, Noah, I'm going to need you to step away from your life for just one second and swing a hammer for the next 100 years for my mission. Are you in? Then we go back to Genesis chapter 12 or chapter 10, and we see Abram, uh, where God calls him out. And he says this, go from your country, from your people, from your father's house to the land that I'll show you. And he makes him a promise. He says, I'll go and make you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. I will make you a blessing and I'll bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Many of you know the story of Moses, right? He's one of many shepherds caring for the flocks and he sees this burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. Therefore, the Lord says, come now and I will send you to Pharaoh. It's like God picks and chooses these specific heroes of the faith. And then oftentimes we view the mission of God in patterns like this. Like in a room this size, there's going to be one God that stands on stage and leads the music. In the room this size, there's going to be one person on mission, and all of the rest of us are there to support that mission. So I think we think of the missions of God like this. We have Abraham, Noah, Samson, David, and the prophets. We have John the Baptist, his disciples. He calls them to go. It's the missionaries, the seminary trained. That are called to go. And of course, there's the Great Commission, but we command that to be in the, the context of the church and a collective group of believers. So we easily convince ourselves that our role is to simply or maybe only fund missions. But in Mark chapter 5, we see that the Lord does something entirely different in the pattern and the mission of God. It's a story you're probably familiar with, and it's a setting uh, that Jesus has just ridden across the Sea of Galilee. He's calmed the storm with three simple words, peace, be still. And soon after that, we pick up in this text in Mark chapter 5. Would you read with me? He says this, they came to the other side of the sea into the country of Gesserinus. I don't really know how to pronounce that. I'm just making it up. And when he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him and he had his dwelling among the tombs and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been torn apart by him and the shackles broken in in pieces and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, day and night, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. I mean, you can get the picture that this man is absolutely uh, tormented by evil. Verse six, seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. There's just a sermon right there. You get that this evil from a distance, didn't choose to run from Jesus. Without Jesus' spoken word, he was compelled to come and bow. And so he confronts Jesus, and he says this, and shouting with a loud voice, he says, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me, for he's been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And when he was asking him, what is your name? And so he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. And so he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swan feeding nearby on the mountain and the demons implored him saying, send us into the swan so we may enter them. So Jesus gave permission and coming out the unclean spirits entered the swan and then the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, um, about 2,000 of them and they were drowned there in the sea. And so their herdsmen ran away and they reported to the city and the country and the people who came to see what was happening. And they came to Jesus and observed this man who had been demon-possessed sitting down clothed in his right mind. We don't know where the clothes came from. I like to imagine Jesus was like, hey, Peter, just you know, swap out with him. You know? And they became frightened, Scripture said. Bill Pixner is a a scholar on Galilee, and he points out this this region of Galilee probably consisted of about seven pagan Canaanite nations that were driven out by Joshua and the Israelites. And these nations worshipped Baal, they ate and sacrificed pigs, something that would be absolutely forbidden by the Jewish nation. And so probably these people in Jesus' day who took scriptures very seriously viewed Decapolis, this region, uh, as very pagan. And so it's no surprise when the disciples are running across the Sea of Galilee, rowing their way to this, to this island. Uh, basically, they're met with evil, this storm. I'm sure they view it as demons and Satan himself trying to prevent them. And so Jesus calmed the storm. The disciples probably were, uh, not probably, most definitely afraid for their lives. Jesus comes to shore, he encounters this demon-possessed man, and he heals him. With words spoken like he spoke to the storm, Jesus heals the demon-possessed man. And it wasn't just any healing. Like the many, many miracles of Jesus, it was an absolute impossibility. The entire town had tried before to contain this man. And now they've come to see with their own eyes what the herdsmen are alleging to have happened. And they can't believe it. And so when they arrived, the man isn't just subdued, he's clothed. In his right mind, he's speaking clearly. And it's a change that doesn't just invoke celebration, or any celebration, in fact. They're afraid. And because of that fear, they begged Jesus to leave. But not the man. You see, this is like the setting. It's the the pattern that we would expect. If you've never read this story and you read the rest of the stories in Scripture, you can probably guess what happens. This man, healed by Jesus, comes to Jesus, and he does. He's getting ready to ask Jesus, Jesus, let me go with you and your disciples. And our answer would probably, well, that fits the pattern, right? Because that's what Jesus does. Jesus commands us to always leave and always go and always be the guy, the the one, the special guy. And so he asked Jesus, If he could go with them. Verse 16, he says this, And they described to him how it happened. The demon-possessed man and all about the swan. And they began to implore him, Jesus, to leave the region. And he was getting in his boat. The man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. Verse 19, And he did not let him. Jesus told this guy, No. No. I'm not sending you to a foreign land. I'm not sending you across an ocean. I'm not sending you anywhere except home. Look at the words that Jesus says. He says, go home to your people and to report to them what great things the Lord has done for you. And how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim to Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. There's just a few short things that I want to point out to you today, church. And the first is this: that the mission of God isn't always to go to a foreign land, but to go with purpose to where God has sent you, and that could be to your home. Right now, I would argue that that today, that place for you today is your neighborhood, it's your workplace, it's your family. It's your friends. It's the place that God has sovereignly placed you in this very moment, that God would call us to this moment today. We, we live, obviously, in, in the town of Roseville. We'd love to, to be a part of it. And if you don't know it, it's really easy to figure out. Uh, we love baseball, just love baseball. We have a parade for opening day of baseball here in Parade in Roseville. I mean, teams decorate floats. There's an opening pitch and ceremony, all this stuff. And so both of my boys play, and because of that, I like to coach. And so uh, coaching Little League has been a sanctifying process in my life. I'm just going to say that. Right? Every year you have a kid on your team that you wish wasn't, you know? And I know you think I'm a terrible person for saying that. It's just true. And if you've ever coached little guys, you know, I didn't think this through. Because at exchange, I'm I'm easily able to scan the crowd and make sure I'm not talking about you when I'm telling a story. So I'm going to tell a story, and I can promise that it's probably not about your son. Okay. Um, it happens every year. So it's not really specific, but this year specifically, there's this kid that, you know, his parents wanted him to play, but he always wanted to play pitcher and he, he just wasn't pitcher material. You know, it's just, let's just be honest. He was right field material all day long. You know, I mean, this guy would sit in the dirt. He would play. I mean, his cap was most often like in front of his face, And every inning, he would come in, and he would be like, Coach, when can I pitch? And I just played the delay tactics for a long time, you know? I was like, I don't know. Ask your dad, you know? Um, And so it was like one of the last games in the season, and they had the other team hit an in-the-park grand slam that went like right by his feet, you know? He did, he was, he's playing with something. I don't know what, I don't know what he had in his pockets on the outfield. And he comes in, you know, like I'm about to lose my mind. And He comes in coach kind can pitch. Ugh. You know, before you like to pitch, you have to like baseball. You can't choose where you play unless you've already decided that you want to play. I think for some of us, like we we get this idea in our head that maybe if I go on the mission field or maybe if I'm on this uh, missions trip or maybe if God just serves up this incredible uh, volley to me where I can just hit the gospel smack in somebody's face, I'll do it. Right. But maybe that's not what God has called you to do. Maybe God has not called you across an ocean. Maybe God has not called you to go to a foreign land. I'm sure of it, that God has called you to the place that you live right now. I'm sure of it. Today, that is God's mission for you. That's it. And so many times we we like to push our mission out to someone else. I I will say it in a a broader term. Most often we like to subcontract out the mission of God to only those who are willing and able to go. And that's not the mission of God. It's not the mission of God that we would just simply give so that others could be a part of the mission of God. That's not the mission of God. I want you to understand that I'm not, for one second, advocating that we wouldn't give. We get to play a critical and crucial mandated part of missions by providing to those who can go. And I don't want you to think that we're advocating any less than that. Scripture's clear on that, that we live our lives with open hands. We're stewards of anything we're allowed to hold for this short life. But what I've witnessed from North Wake, that's not a problem. I've watched generous hearts through intermissions in the journey of faith. I'm excited to hear what your church is able to do now that the building is paid off. That's an incredible, incredible gift. Now is not the time to sit back. It's the time to press forward. And I'm not asking you to give less. I'm asking you to go more. Let me say it this way. Don't let what you give towards missions ease your conscience of your unwillingness to be on mission. Don't let what you give towards missions this year ease your conscience of your unwillingness to be on mission where God has Placed you. He's placed you here for today. Maybe not tomorrow, but for today. And I think we'll give an account for a lot of things. And this is just my opinion, but I think that we could make a case for this out of neighbor love and the commandments of Christ. But I believe also that God is not honored. And that there will be possibly judgment for us who pledge and give money to send others to go when we don't know our neighbor's name. God has called us to the place that he has put us. I think in many ways it should cause us to recalibrate how we view the Great Commission, Matthew 28. We know this. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, even Rollsville, even Wake Forest, even Raleigh, even the neighborhood that you currently live. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. You know, I know in our circles, there are plenty who feel the call to go and you need to. We want you to. We want to do everything that we can to send you well. But don't believe the lie that a change in geography or your circumstance will change your heart and urgency towards the gospel. That's not how it works. You know, it's hard to say what the man remembered. And what he did, and the Bible doesn't really tell us a lot about the exchange that happened between absolutely crazy and demon-possessed. And in his right mind, fully clothed. But it seems as if because of asking Jesus to go, it seems as if he understood that Jesus was responsible for the restoration of his life. It seems because he wanted so desperately to go with Jesus that he understood that Jesus did something incredible for him that couldn't be explained. Maybe when the demons were cast out, he understood his nakedness like the Garden of Eden. Maybe he had very clear memories of the crazy and harmful things that he did while he was possessed by these demons. And I think the easiest thing for this man to do would have been to go with Jesus. He could have had a fresh start. Maybe Jesus and the disciples could have used his story to share the gospel. He wouldn't have had to acknowledge his past. He could just kind of move on, make new friends, just kind of step over the awkwardness of, yeah, I was the guy naked in the, in the graveyard screaming. That was me. But notice what he did. We're told of this region of Decapolis. Two other times in scripture, one in Mark chapter seven, just a little bit later. And it says this, that again, he went out from the region of Tyre and came to sit on the sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis, same place. And they brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty and they implored him to lay his hands on them. Verse 36, and he gave them orders not to tell anyone, but the more he ordered them, Jesus, the more they widely continued to proclaim it. Matthew chapter 15 says it this way. He says, And large crowds continually came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others. And they laid down at their feet and he healed them. It was as if word got out that Jesus was worth listening to. This man went back to his home to the people that he was embarrassed probably by. He says, listen, I, I can't explain everything. But I know this, I was naked living in the tombs and Jesus changed me. It reminds me of the blind who says, well, I can't answer all your questions. All I know is I was blind, but now I see. What's fascinating about this story is there was no training course involved in evangelism. This man didn't take a class to learn how to share his faith. He didn't know the tenets of the major theological systems. I don't know if he knew about the Trinity. Here's what he knew. I was naked living in caves, and Jesus came into my life. I was dead, and now I'm alive. My life was ruined, and he gave me purpose. Man, let's just be real for a second. Let's stop waiting to have all the answers. Let's stop waiting to go overseas. Let's stop waiting for the geographical or circumstantial change that'll compel us into the mission of God. And let's get busy like this man who was healed and brought out of the tombs and say, I wanna be a part of the mission of God, however that is, wherever it is right now, today. That's the mission of God where he would call us and compel us to move. Listen, our past history and failures should not embarrass you into silence. It should be the catalyst to gospel conversations. We shouldn't be afraid to go to our work and apologize. We shouldn't go to our neighbors and say, hey man, I really blew it last month with you, yelling across the yard, I'm sorry. We shouldn't be embarrassed to go to our family and say, listen, I need to ask for forgiveness. I wouldn't normally do this, but Jesus has changed my life. I don't have all the answers. I don't know all the theological systems. But I do know Jesus changed me. I think so many times we just try to like live our lives on the sidelines, you know? And watch as the current flows by us and the mission of God is happening. I think sometimes we just, we're too comfortable in the still waters, you know what I mean? There's a fascinating story and I'm going to be done, that Palmer Chishtin writes in his book, True Religion. He talks about an adventure he and his brothers had to travel the western edge of Zimbabwe and raft the Zimbabwe River. He says this, We boarded a raft at the base of Victoria Falls. Massive amounts of water spilled over the top of the giant falls and dropped almost 1,000 feet down. The roar was deafening. And the falls are the largest in the world, more than a mile wide and 300 feet high. Mist from the spray fills the air like a fog that can be seen for 50 miles. And the local calls it the smoke that thunders. The water from the falls rushes down the gorge and the turrets, creating the world's largest rapids. In the United States, he says, the highest class rapid that we have or that you're allowed to raft is a class five, but Zimbabwe's white water rapids can top sevens and eights. And so he says this I sat on the edge of the eight person raft, all suited up tight with the overstuffed jacket, with the thick crash helmet, and I felt like this overcautious tourist that was about to. To, to go down a moped in Honolulu or maybe rent rollerblades on Huntington Beach. The Zimbabwe River can't be that dangerous, right? But then our God spoke. And He said, When the raft flips, He did not say if it flips or on the off chance that we get flipped, but when the raft flips, He went on, stay in the rough water. You'll be tempted to swim out towards the stagnant water on the edge of the banks. Don't do it. Because it's in the stagnant water that the crocs wait for you. They're large and hungry. But true, he says this, So when the raft flips, stay in the current. You know, this stagnancy, I think, will kill our spirit. And the church of tomorrow must resist this apathy, this stagnancy. God needs us in the rough waters, pouring our lives into the people that He has sovereignly placed us beside. Live where it's just a little bit uncertain. And maybe a little unsafe. I wonder what the Lord would do if the people in this room would just decide, even now, even today, you know what? I'm not going to subcontract out the mission of God anymore. I'm in. My job isn't to just fund missions, my job is to be on mission. I'm not going to wait for a training class, I'm going to talk to my neighbor. I'm going to invite him over for dinner. I'm going to ask for forgiveness. I'm going to take one step in the mission of God. I believe that that if we would simply take a step in the mission of God in the rough water, God will bless it and our community will be changed forever. Will you step into the mission of God? Would you pray with me?